Hello, movies at the bar fam. It's your girl, Bethy. In honor of The Matrix Resurrections, we are re-releasing our very first full-length episode about the Wachowski siblings' Cloud Atlas. So, it's a real humdinger of an ep. It was a nice time, and at the end of this, we also have a little bonus episode talking about uh, Matrix 4. So, stick around for that, and as always, full spoilers for Cloud Atlas, full spoilers for Matrix Resurrections, I don't know, full spoilers for the Animatrix even, we go deep. Get into it, catch the fever. You are listening to Watching Movies at the Bar, a podcast about bar movies and movie bars. I am Thomas Grabinski. And I'm Bethy Squires. And tonight we're going to be talking about a movie that I'm very excited about. And yeah, we're, we're, we're happy to have all three of you listening. The three being my dad, one of the future guests, and Santa Claus. Santa Claus, yeah, and we've got the fourth listener, which is my mom, because we haven't cursed yet, uh, but when that happens, it's out the window. I am going to ruin this podcast for your mother. I just know it. <laughs> I couldn't my stop- mom's going to learn new words from Bethy. <laughs> I couldn't stop swearing when I was a teacher, so I'm not going to do it for a podcast. That's incredible. Were there any unique instances of you swearing in a uniquely offensive way that shocked a child? Uh, not that, not that I can think of offhand. One time I was sworn at in a way that will stick with me for the rest of my life. This is when I was working in the daycare of a domestic violence shelter. So there were some kids who were, were very troubled, like coming out of abuse situations and, and reacting weirdly to that as is their right as human beings, right, I would right. say. But, um, one kid was like, she couldn't. She hated nap time and she would lash out every single time. But I was the one usually who could get her to calm down and to like, I would like tell her a story usually. Uh, I would tell her a story that was actually just guided hypnosis. I would, I would just be like, <laughs> and you're, it was, I would tell her that like her favorite, like SpongeBob or somebody was playing hide and seek with her. And I would describe every room. And first they'd have her count to a hundred in the story so that she could play hide and seek with SpongeBob. And I was like, doing in this slow calming voice and she didn't know that i was doing guided meditation at her but anyway one day it super wasn't working and she just stands up on top of her cot and she goes you motherfucker you pee head oh wow and it was the best it was the best i miss her so much that'll never leave you no i'm being called a motherfuck <laughs> <laughs> Kids, kids figure it out in time. But then, and then to go, like, eventually she'll figure out that you start with pee head and then you escalate to motherfuck. Right. And she needed you to guide her. Mm -hmm. That's the main thing I taught her. I didn't actually know that you were versed in guided meditation, but I, I think that at the end of one of these episodes, we'll go right into one and we'll, we'll do a content warning because i suspect a lot of people listening will be driving cars mm -hmm. uh and we won't want them to crash 
But that could be nice. I think we could lull people into a peaceful slumber. You have a uh, sonorous voice, I would say. I feel like you could help with that. Yeah, I could help with that. I, I think if they don't fall asleep while I'm talking, you will intentionally put them to sleep. <laughs> so yeah, this is watching movies at the bar. And tonight's uh, tonight's pick, like I said, is something I'm really excited about. Rather than keeping it a secret any longer, we're going to be talking about Cloud Atlas, which is the Wachowski Teichfer adaptation of the David Mitchell novel. I think this movie is more ambitious than almost any movie ever made, and I think that yields some really incredible fruit and it it also has some problems and I think we're going to get into all of this but I actually am a big fan of this movie Bethy has never seen it so Bethy's coming into this one pretty fresh yeah I watched uh, Cloud Atlas for the first time mm, six hours ago (laughs) so I'm still kind of recovering I it was available for free to stream on Tubi with ads and I was so tempted to do it that way and see what it was like when it was like distro- like broken up even more by like like those pervert bears that love to poop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you texted me that it was on Tubi and you were tempted and I respected your decision making and didn't assert either way, but I'm glad that you watched uninterrupted. Yeah, I watched it uninterrupted all one sitting like a good girl. I didn't pause it to go do something else. I'm glad because I You know, I like this movie, but when I sat down to watch it, I thought I was going to have to carve out a couple of sittings because it's a three-hour movie. I I was worried I wouldn't be able to commit, but the movie has a surprisingly efficient edit. I think everything feels really thematically motivated, even though you're cutting through these parallel stories. And so to me, it never feels too disjointed beyond the fact that you have six completely differently designed movies happening at once. Yeah, I think that the way that they balance and undercut the different stories works really well. I think maybe we could lose maybe two of those narratives. That's really interesting. And I'm, I'm excited to hear which, which I don't ones even know think. which ones. I just know that two gotta go. <laughs> Fair enough. So, so as 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 we're realizing, we've got one one lover of Cloud Atlas and one hopefully a, appreciator of at least some aspects of Cloud Atlas. Yeah, I I got very emotional uh, as as I was saying because I used to work at a domestic violence shelter. I I've been something of a social justice warrior in my life, and uh, I. I vibe high key with movies that are actually concerned with how one affects change in the world yeah, or whether such a thing can happen. Uh, that's why I, so I really love Judas and the Black Messiah. And like, honestly, I didn't finish it because I was crying the entire movie. <laughs> like, it's so The minute tough. it started, I was like, we lost so much. <laughs> and, like truly lost my shit. And then for this one, it was, um, Interesting, like at near the end of the movie, uh, one of the one of the repeating people said, like, what is an ocean if not a multitude of drops? Which is something that I have said about uh, social justice work and activism and, and the fact that you can only do what you can. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was like, 
Okay, you're stealing thoughts out of my brain. <laughs> uh, and yet also you're putting really whack noses on people. So I don't know what to do with you, Cloud Atlas. Yeah, it's tough. It's kind of it's kind of all over the place in that way. But I do think that its heart is very much in the right place. And that, I think, is ultimately what wins me over. You know, it's a $130 million movie, which is fucking insane. But that $130 million was cobbled together entirely from independent sources. Then two of the three filmmakers are trans women. And so it becomes something that is really unique. It's not, it's not, uh, it doesn't feel like an exploitative studio movie that that is cashing in on these ideas of, of empathy and justice. It does feel very personal, even if it doesn't all connect. Do you agree with that? Is I would that... say it feels very personal, and that's maybe part of why it doesn't connect. Like, the the things that this movie whiffs feel so specific. Like, not even necessarily to the Wachowskis, but, like, this is not, this is not a movie that could happen by committee for good and for ill. <laughs> right. Like, yeah, the yeah, things yeah. that it does well, it does well because it's these specific people making it. The things that it messes up are things that these particular people have blind sides about. Yes. Blind uh, spots. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we're going to get into, I think there's a big one. I think there's an umbrella issue with this movie. Um, and we'll definitely talk about it. But um, maybe... I can do a quick flyover for people who don't know what Cloud Atlas is, if, if someone still needs to be persuaded to check it out, um, and why I think this movie fits the theme of the podcast as we start to figure out what exactly this thing is. So when we talk about watching movies at the bar, we talk about movies that play well on bar screens without sound, um, movies that you gush about at the bar after two drinks, or movies that prominently feature bars. This is not um, category number three, but I do think it's it's both categories one and two for me. It's a movie that is so visually distinctive that if you were watching it, even without audio, um, the six distinctive timelines uh, have very different looks, have, have pretty pretty emphatic visual storytelling. I think there's a real movie there, even if you can't hear it. But I think more than anything, it's a movie that I just want to talk to people I love about because it's such a fucking buffet of ideas and images and the stuff that does work really, really resonates for me. So Cloud Atlas, uh, I can't think of another movie that does this, has six entirely different stories that run the length of the film that star the same actors in interchangeable roles. And the movie cuts between them um, with parallel action and similar thematic shifts uh, in a way that's really interesting. So the first timeline takes place in the mid-19th century. There is a lawyer um, who is sailing across the ocean. He has uh, some sort of brain parasite, he suspects, and so he partners with Tom Hanks, who is a really fucked-up doctor, um, who is providing him intimate care. Uh, as this care continues, this lawyer realizes that there is a stowaway um, slave who is uh, 
staying in his quarters named Autua um, and Ewing, this attorney, and Autua Bond, um, and, and they both grow through this process. Uh, the next story takes place in around 1930. Yeah. Um, and there is there is a composer named Robert Frobisher um, who leaves his lover, Six Smith. They're, they're two gay men. He leaves to um, basically be an amanuensis for Vivian Ayers, who is the preeminent composer of the day and he thinks that by spending this time with this composer he will be able to realize his compositional ambitions and he is composing something called the cloud atlas sextet which is a piece of music that appears in all six timelines of the film and sort of unifies them in 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 strange ways the next timeline is in the 1970s. You've got uh, Halle Berry, who plays a journalist named Louisa Ray, who comes into possession of some documents that suggest that uh, a nuclear power company is not operating sustainably and that there may be some sort of catastrophic meltdown. And for one reason or another, this is being hidden from the public. And she finds herself in danger trying to expose the truth of this story. Then in 2012, you have what is maybe the the funniest uh, of the of the stories, and the one that I would watch um, on its own, which is Jim Broadbent plays uh, an an older man who unwittingly finds himself incarcerated against his will in an old folks home, and so he and and some of the fellow um, residents hatch a plan to escape. The next one. And the one that I think is the most problematic and one that Bethy and I will talk about is um, a near future version of Seoul. And it deals with the state of South Korea at this time and androids who resemble humans and um, are basically programmed to perform I don't think they're androids. Labor. I think they're people. They're just genetically engineered and thus have fewer rights. Like they're still human. Oh, I thought they were robots. No, because they get turned into food, so I think they have to be organic. Right. I thought they were they were still artificially generated. But I could I, be they're wrong. grown in a vat, but they're still. I think they're just like cloned, and so they right. they just don't count like a person. Yeah, and, and and the movie makes an argument for what constitutes humanity. Um. So so either way, I, I it it works. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I I must I might be wrong there. Um, and then the last one is a post-apocalyptic Hawaii where Tom Hanks plays um, a, a man of the village who guides Halle Berry from a future society to a satellite dish that can communicate with folks uh, in deep space. So there's a lot going on in Cloud Atlas. It is a, it is a huge fucking movie. I would say also as we were talking about like what makes a movie appropriate for this podcast, I saw part of Cloud Atlas at a bar. Oh, amazing. It was on the TV at three clubs one time that I was there. So I saw, I, I don't even know what part. I just remember seeing Tom Hanks and going, really? All right. <laughs> and <laughs> in in which, of, which of his six characters? I want to say it's when he plays the like, maybe crime writer. Oh my God. Who does a crime. That's, that might be my favorite sequence in the movie. But we'll talk <laughs> about that, I assume, in, in, some, in some depth, whatever depth is there. 
But the thing about Cloud Atlas that is so exciting to me and the thing that makes these these super disparate stories work together is that it is a movie that is about the transcendental bond between human beings that is in itself constitutive of life. And beyond that, it's just about kind of the greater karmic need to treat others with love and kindness. And it, it, it shows sort of the reverberations past, present and future of those, those good deeds um, and expressions of love. And it sounds silly. It sounds hyper earnest, but the, the commitment and the conviction of the filmmaking really wins me over. I would argue that it, it not only sounds silly and sounds hyper earnest, but it is silly and is hyper earnest. And I don't think those are, are detractions. Those are just, I'm saying those as value neutral judgments that it's a silly movie and it's a very earnest movie. But if you meet the movie where it's coming from, then that will be enriching for you. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think I, um, yeah, I, I, I fully agree with you. I think Cloud Atlas is definitively not a movie for everyone. Um <laughs> The the tone is the tone is really weird considering that the the kinds of ideas it's chasing and 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 the big sort of humanitarian thesis it's trying to prove. But um, yeah, I appreciate it. I think for it's, all of that, it's probably the only movie that is about the tension between collectivism and like independence or objectivism and what we owe to one another as fellow human beings or animals on this planet that has a, a, a man in drag get a wine barrel smashed over his head in a soccer hooligan riot. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a, it, you could argue that scene rules. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there is there is something to note, I think, before we get too into this, which is the big criticism um, of Cloud Atlas, beyond the fact that it is unwieldy and, and certainly not for everyone, which is that there are white actors in the Neo-Soul timeline who are given prosthetics and makeup to play, basically to be Korean... Korean-ish, Neo-Korean, yeah. Yeah, and it's... It's, it's really problematic. And there's an argument that I think the filmmakers would make, which is that the movie sort of transcends body and place and is about spirit, but that does not take into account the long history of Hollywood and the way that um, Asian actors have not been given the opportunity to play themselves and, and to have these sort of leading roles. And so it's something that I think we got to talk about. Yeah, I would say also arguing on behalf of the movie, there are, there are several people of color who get white faced in the movie who play white characters. Uh, so do with that what you want. I think the the argument, and then that also that there are in the cast of recurring actors, there are two Asian women. Yeah, which is more than is usually in any movie. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the movie has an inarguably diverse cast for this budget size, but I, yeah, I I, I do think those depictions are just sort of inherently troubling, and I don't know what the best solution is for this story, whether it's to have you know, actors only perform in three of the six timelines to make sure that those roles are cast and treated um, as respectfully as possible. I, I, I don't really know. Well, here's the thing. In the movie, they have... Uh, in Neo Soul, it's 
the the over culture, the dominant hegemonic culture is called the unanimity. And we perceive that as speaking English. And then there's like a subclass that speaks Korean. So you could just have white people be in future Korea for reasons that we don't even need to get into. Right. Uh, it's also weird to me because cause you're making up this world. This is make em up. So you can choose to make the future whatever you want it to be. So it could be, since it's already a place where Korean is not as used as whatever unanimity's language is, it can be a place that is has people who look like the main cast of Cloud Atlas. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it lives in a really murky space, and um, I, I think I think the ways that it's it's been read as troubling speak to the Wachowskis' limitations as filmmakers um, and their life's experience. But uh, there are lots of other things about Cloud Atlas that I think are good. There's lots of other things. The thing about Cloud Atlas, the word I guess I would describe it is lots, just lots. I- I think that's great. I, I can't think of a better descriptor. Um, uh, I, I think the the conviction with which Tom Hanks speaks in this strange future dialect and Halle Berry follows his lead is is a testament to how much these actors trust the Wachowskis and how excited they are to be with them on this journey. Um, uh, there's, there's lots of stuff in this movie that is just wild to me. Um, I think the score is really amazing. I think, you know, obviously the the Cloud Atlas sextet um, emphasizes different ideas um, throughout the film. And it's also interesting that that music is composed by Tom Teichfer, the third director of the film, um, who also made Run, Lola, Run for context, anyone who's listening and doesn't know that name. But uh, yeah, there's lots, of, there's lots of good stuff going on here. But... Um, because you have presumably watched this movie to prepare for the podcast, or after listening to this, you're going to go watch yourself, uh, we, won't, we won't talk too much more about the broad strokes. I think because Cloud Atlas is such a buffet of a movie, I wanted to talk about sequences and characters that we either uh, loved or, or found to be really bizarre. Um, so I'm curious, Bethy, what was the stuff that really jumped out at you in this movie? Or what's the stuff that has like real staying power? Uh, I, speaking of uh, Tom Hanks committing to the bit is for sure one of the things that most stuck with me. I have a, a question, I guess, which is, do you think that the, the star wattage of this cast helps or hinders immersion in the movie? I, that's a good question. I find Cloud Atlas to be utterly engrossing. I don't know that I find it to be entirely immersive for a lot of different reasons. I think, I think just by virtue of, you know, cutting through the different stories and, and the different looks of movie, the, the huge star power is just another element of that. I think there also is this uncanny way where every time you see Hugo weaving in a new outfit, be it as a nurse in the 2012 timeline, or is this like... Future Babadook? Baba- <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's totally <laughs> Babadook, I was just gonna say, and we haven't talked about this, hell yeah. So he, to me, is doing this like Babadook-Old Greg hybrid 
and, and, and he's entirely committed to the performance and he's clearly having so much fucking fun. And that, that makes it hard to ever be immersed. Cause it's just this like, who's who of, you know, thespians and, and Hollywood A-list actors doing bizarro stuff and clearly enjoying it. And that's just part of it. I think cloud Atlas is like this carnivalesque piece, um, that that is just so emotionally focused that it becomes unlike anything I've ever seen. Yeah, I think at the beginning I had a lot of trouble, like when Hugh Grant does. Is he supposed to be an American Southerner in the seventies? Where is he from in that part? When when he works at the nuclear. Yeah, when he's the big bad of the seventies timeline, I, I was like, mm, no, and I wrote down. Uh, some words phonetically uh, the way that um, Tom Hanks who appears so in the in the 2012 timeline Tom Hanks appears to be a Pirates of the Caribbean animatronic who has come to life and written a book that was not well received oh my god this is this is the best thing in the movie to me. Uh, it, it, you could excise this and you could show it to someone and you could be like, this is why Cloud Atlas rules. I'm just going to chime in and say his name is Dermot Dusty Hoggins. Oh, yes, thank you. That's really important. <laughs> it, it's such a great name. And his book is called Knuckle Sandwich. And I was shocked, shocked when that whole scene ended and he didn't say, I've got a knuckle sandwich for you, right? Like, he never, like, did the obvious thing, the writerly thing, honestly, which would be to be like, here's a knuckle sandwich for you, ba-bow, and then hit a guy. But he says at one point, uh, Oi want pipple to boy me fucking book now. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. (laughs) It's so good, yeah, because, so, just just to contextualize this a bit, if you haven't seen the movie, uh, Jim Broadbent's character uh, is named Timothy Cavendish, and he is, uh, what he's is... He's a publisher. Is he, is, yeah, he's, he's, he's a publisher. He publishes this book, um, and he ultimately gets into some trouble with this character, which is why he ends up involuntarily committed to this old person's home, but... Um, yeah, so at this scene, they go to um, a, basically an awards banquet called the Lemon Prizes, and it's so it's 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 Timothy Cavendish and uh, Dermot Dusty Hoggins, and when he gets there, Dermot Dusty Hoggins sees this 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 uh, book critic named Felix Finch, who is just like you know, like a stereotypical prick. He's got a scarf. He's he's really smug and hoity-toity. And, and Dermot hates seeing him so much and recalls that the last line of this review is that Knuckle Sandwich is flat and inane beyond belief. And so uh, basically he gives a toast and he picks up this book critic and throws him off the roof of the building and he splatters on the ground and dies. I cannot stress enough how much this book critic like splashes on impact like they it's... they do a cgi blood that makes it like uh like sea world the the it's... blood spatter i love it so much and th- the the thing that that hanks does say his his last line is he goes he throws him off the roof and he says now that is an ending that's flat in a name beyond belief oh oh <laughs> 
And it's so satisfying. Uh, I've never seen, if 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 nothing else, watch Cloud Atlas to see Tom Hanks have more fun than he's ever had playing Dermot Dusty Hoggins for four minutes. And he minutes. says the C word. Yeah, he does. There's this thing that stuck with me. I When I revisited Cloud Atlas, I hadn't seen it since it came out in 2013, but uh, Tom Hanks calls Felix Finch, Felix fucking Finch. And that's just lived rent-free in my brain since then. Is Felix fucking Finch played by one of the recurring people? I don't think so, but... Because, like, was it uh, James? I thought it was James Darcy at first, but maybe it wasn't. I think he's he's James Darcy adjacent, but uh, maybe it is. If we've got a real Cloud Atlas head listening, you can uh, tweet at this us. This is and... a Google away, and I'm just not doing it we're too busy podcasting to be googling we casting out here that's what's happening yeah no i love that that's that's one of my favorite things in the movie i think i have i have uh ripped that clip and it just lives on my phone and i revisit it from time to time i think the thing again from the same section which i would argue is the one that actually does gotta go <laughs> the broadbent section could be its own oh my movie God. but i don't that's, think it belongs yeah. in this movie <laughs> Every time, because like all the other ones are about like slavery or uh, nuclear annihilation or uh, genetic engineering, and this one is is a truly wacky comedy. The, it's like a British comedy. It's uh, almost totally self-contained. Uh, but the part where. <laughs> The part where Jim Broadbent is like remembering his past and how he fell out of a window and broke both of his ankles and they said, Coals of injury. Porsche. <laughs> and it's the way he's because he's hold I it's important to say I fucked this part up. It's important to say he was holding a cat to cover his uh twig and berries because he was caught in fulgrante delecto by the lady whom he is fucking's parents. <laughs> so they come in, and he's like, I can explain. Uh, but he's covering his balls with a cat, and the cat is like, I don't want to be doing this, and just, like, scratches him on the dick and balls area, which causes him to fall out of a window. So the cause of the injury is... Porsche. And it... um, That's just in there now. <laughs> that's in there now. Uh, yeah, that scene kills me. That's super goofy and feels... Uh like it's in another movie but it, it reminds me that not to get too off topic but my freshman year of college there was a guy who lived on my floor um i will call him a to protect his identity <laughs> but um one night at 3 a.m the floor group chat received a message that said oh fuck <laughs> and then and then 30 seconds later a message that said i cut maya slef and then, and then, thirty seconds later, I jumped onto a bush. What's in a slap? What did he mean to take? It's uh, myself. Oh. Um, and so <laughs> I cut myself. I jumped onto a bush. And the next day, we see him, and he goes, "He's just he's covered in scratches and neosporin," uh, and he says. Oh, fuck, man. 
I got really drunk last night, and there was a bush by the quad, and it looked so fluffy. <laughs> and so I jumped onto it. And it wasn't fluffy, man. Um, this feels tangential, but the first night that I met Colin, the love of my life, he got really high, so high that he climbed up a tree and couldn't climb back down. <laughs> or or wouldn't. It was either that he couldn't figure out how to get down or he decided it was better up here and this is where I will stay. That's so sweet. <laughs> we love Colin. Also Colin is Colin is 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 the sound engineer for the podcast. He he makes sure that we sound good and that everything is edited to, together well. So thank you Colin. And uh I don't think I'll be able to stop talking about him because I'm in quarantine, you know, trapped with just my spouse for company. So if it sounds like I'm like rubbing my relationship in people's face, it's just if the if I had a cat, everything would be about this is how the cat reacted to the movie. <laughs> uh, no, Colin, if there's one person I want to hear anecdotes about constantly, it's Colin. Colin's a sweetie. So yeah, Cloud Atlas. There's this great moment in the future timeline with Tom Hanks and Halle Berry on the island where he is finally persuaded to help her. And there are these bad guys on horseback who they hear coming down the trail. And he, like, grabs her and they jump down and they're in this hovel and you've got the wide shot of horses passing over the top. And it's a direct shot reference of Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, when the hobbits are ducking down as the dark riders travel overhead, and it's like it's the mo- it, it's it's almost too obvious a reference, but I really like it in this movie. I will say that is also so we've already talked about the issues with the neo soul part, but personally, as somebody who has like Hawaiian blood, seeing a, a Hawaii without Hawaiians is like genuinely upsetting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I understand that. It's also that that whole thing is really interesting because the Babadook old Greg that Hugo Weaving plays is this weird spectral presence who intentionally sows like racial discord. He's like telling He like Tom reinvents Hanks, racism. Yeah. In one it, scene. It, it's, it's such a strange uh mythology that I guess sort of tips us off to whatever might have happened but uh yeah that that stuff's really weird the movie glosses over these strange larger ideas i don't totally understand i'm curious about in the book who this baba duke is supposed to be and whether he's explained more because it does it seems like the two conflicting philosophies of cloud atlas are like we are all connected. We might as well be nice to each other because we everybody affects everybody else. So just just like fucking chill out for goddamn once. <laughs> just hang out. And then the other the other philosophy is uh the weaker meat that the strong eat. The weak the weaker meat the strong eat. That's what the that's right, like a which rhyme is what that comes the up. Shitty Tom Hanks doctor says when he's trying to kill Jim Sturgis? Jim Sturgis. Yeah. Um, but it's also something that Babadook says, I think. Oh, I didn't realize it was, that it, that, it was, echoes that a was repeated. Times. 
the movie yeah the movie does have this interesting run where certain actors hugo weaving specifically only depicts these sort of evil oppressors throughout time and so the movie seems to have this idea that you know good deeds beget good but also this idea that like i don't know evil and 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 ill lives on in perpetuity like it's it none of none of that is ever resolved from one from one timeline to the next yes i'm a little confused about whether the people who are acted by the same folks are reincarnations or just sort of repeating like folklore morphologies like i don't entirely understand the metaphysics of cloud atlas yeah, I think it's I think it's ambiguous. In the book, I don't think that there are markers to indicate connections between characters that we connect based on who is performing them. Um, and and someone who is a Cloud Atlas scholar can tell me if I'm wrong. But when I watch it, I do feel like there are character arcs, like macro character mm-hmm. arcs that can be traced through some of the characters, like Tom Hanks's characters. Um, start out really shitty and then there's this midpoint moment in the film that I actually really like which is where he is one of the physicists at the nuclear company who meets with the journalist Halle Berry um, and everyone has been really awful and hostile and kind of frightening and he just sort of breaks and explains that you know, uh, a, a friend or a lover of his has explained to him this notion of past lives that intellectually, you know, he doesn't he doesn't believe in, but there's something about it that just sticks with him. And so he kind of breaks from his trajectory as this self-interested guy and and helps her. and And then the Tom Hanks characters, beyond that are like better they're like more protagonists whereas they start out as shitheads um it's if it's if Halle Berry is in that timeline so if Halle Berry is near Tom Hanks then he'll do a heel face turn in wrestling parlance but he'll stay heel if there is no Halle Berry because there are a couple different uh like couples that want to do kisses across the centuries yeah yeah, so Cloud Atlas is ultimately a meta-text about star power and the impact of Halle Berry's uh, iconicity on Tom Hanks. I do like that there is every... The protagonist of every story in of the six has a comet-shaped birthmark that denotes that they are the lead of this story. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll be honest, I love that yeah, stuff. Yeah, I thought I'm it like... was cute. I liked it. <laughs> I'm a sucker for all of the really sappy stuff in this movie. It's 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 like that line you said that that um, Jim Sturgis says near the end, where he decides that he's going to break from tradition and say "fuck you" to people who buy and sell slaves, and he's going to join the abolitionists. And uh, he says, you know, uh, Hugo Weaving says, "Damn, you're about a drop in the ocean," and he says, "What is the ocean but a collection of drops?" Like the that that could be kind of goofy. I think you could roll your eyes at that, but I think all of those really earnest affectations in the movie land for me. Yeah, they almost all land for me. I don't like when Sunin says, from the womb to the tomb. Oh, yeah. Uh, but everything else about that she says I like. It's just when she says womb to tomb, I'm like, mm, 
too far. Yeah. I find her speech to be to be really touching. I agree with you that that turn of phrase is kind of goofy, but her whole thing that is like, you know, I am maybe maybe I was not born in a womb like you were, but my humanity is is constitutive of the way that I exist in relation to others, in the way that I am seen by other people, in the way that I care for other people. Uh, all of that connects for me. I'm a sap. I, I the sweet stuff in Cloud Atlas. That's the stuff that gets me going. There's um there was this BuzzFeed article about a guy who went into the woods in like upstate New York, like in a a lake community, and he like hid during the summer and like sort of lived off the land in the summer and in the winter he would go into people's cabins and like take their stuff and he did this for like 30 years this man just vanished off the the face of the planet and the only way people were aware that he was a guy was that like they would be down a jar of peanut butter when they came back to their cabin in the (laughs) next summer and he was eventually caught and this buzzfeed uh profile interviews him is like one of the few people who actually gets to interview him and he keeps like asking for like what truth he learned from his like 30 plus years of complete solitude and and he feels like the the writer feels really dissatisfied that this like the the mountain man just talks about like well it was very cold sometimes and then other times it was uh warm and I found that if I just moved less then I needed to eat less he would just like stuff like that and he's like, that says nothing about humanity. And it's like, no, bitch, you aren't a human if you're not around other humans. People are, I think she says something like, she does, she says something about like, we see, we can only understand ourselves through the mirror of other people's perceptions. And yes, yes. And in humans are very reflective, very mirror like creatures. They are always copying, for lack of like, we are, there's no such thing as a self. We are actually a collection of interactions that are sort of aggregated around one meat sack, for lack of a better term. And yeah, uh, that's part of that's what re- was what I was reminded of by Cloud Atlas. So if you're not into like really fucking stoned thoughts like that, then this isn't the <laughs> flick for you. <laughs> but yeah. but if you've also uh, if you were also raised by a therapist whose main pursuit is dissociative identity disorder so that when as a child your your mom would be like there's no such thing as the self we are a set of behaviors that are reflective about what environment we're in then this movie is going to rock for you (laughs) (laughs) hell yeah yeah i i love all of that stuff i mean i just watched devs um the alex garland fx show which i i loved I, i i bethy i don't know if you're a fan of um his stuff like Ex Machina or Annihilation mm-hmm. or Sunshine stuff he's written, but it's devs I really liked, but it's ice cold. It's like a show. It's, it's a cool grounded sci-fi show, but it's very much about determinism. And there is just this kind of like cold linearity to it. Whereas Cloud Atlas is just kind of like a pinball machine of people interacting with each other, uh, you know, hopefully in good ways, sometimes in bad, but it's, it's, it's just, about the agglomeration of all of those human connections, which I, you know, is that's that's nicer to me than determinism. Have you seen um, Sense Eight? I haven't seen Sense Eight, but I'm really curious about it. I 
I, are, are you a fan? I saw, I think I watched the first episode. I liked what I saw. I know that it has a lot of the similar themes of like, uh, the world is a rich tapestry of, of connections and interactions. <laughs> yeah. Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> I really should watch it. I, I love Wachowskis. I mean, I, I am close to saying that Cloud Atlas is is their most impactful work. I ultimately can't because I think The Matrix is unimpeachable. I, I, I think The Matrix is perfect and it's fucking cool and people who goof it are nerds. Um, I think Bound is amazing. I think it's like the best Hitchcock movie that Hitchcock didn't make and in a lot of ways is I like more than <laughs> most Hitchcock movies I love. But... Um, yeah, I love them. I think their only movie I don't like is Jupiter Ascending. Did did you see Jupiter Ascending? No. No, I did not. Uh I love Speed Racer. I think Speed Racer is really cool. Um but Jupiter Ascending to me is just their one thing that is like pure style and it doesn't really have anything to say, but yeah, Bound is crazy i know we're talking about cloud atlas but like the only world where people are not talking about bound every fucking day is one where the people who made bound made the matrix afterward right like the matrix (laughs) was just such this crazy watershed moment that no one thinks to talk as much about you know their their more slight work that came before it but bound is fucking incredible it's like all of the style is there. The Wachowskis had such an innate uh, a grasp on cinematic language. It's it's such a cool movie. It's it's like one of the better erotic thrillers I've seen. It's it's just it's everything. I I think Bound is like a perfect movie. I don't think Cloud Atlas is perfect, but I love it for the the sprawl. Yeah, I think Bound is very tight. It's very condensed. It's it keeps it's very self contained which are all antonyms to words that you would use to describe Cloud Atlas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so speaking of antonyms, let's go from bound to talking about neo-soul. <laughs> if, if, you, if you take away the, the problematic issues of representation, which, which I think are important to address, the design of neo-soul and the set pieces are completely breathtaking did you have that experience or was that just me i think i found some of the set design like the world of neo soul to be a little samey to it was cool but it's also cool in the same way that like blade runner is cool and like the matrix is cool and they give jim sturgis just i think it might even be the same wig that keanu wore in matrix revolutions (laughs) Uh, and and that i found a little I found that story very affecting because I thought uh, the the woman who played Sunin has a, a beautifully reflective uh, reactionary face. Duna Duna Bay. Duna Bay. She's great. Duna Bay. You can see everything happen to her through her, uh, which is what you need because the whole thing she's being taken sort of on a course of enlightenment, and like the way that she. The way that she is sort of uh, impassive and not and like very calm, 
both at the beginning of the story before she's gone through all the stuff and at the end right before she is killed they're two very different forms of of lack of emotion and she's able to play them both very distinctly yeah of, of like a person who has gone gone through she's done having emotions they've served their purpose and now she is in a place of calm understanding of her place in the world as opposed to in the beginning where she's just flat and those read completely different on her face. And I think that's so cool. And I also think it's really cool <laughs> that they give. So so in the Neo Soul part, uh, Duna Bay plays one of many uh, like clone women who are bred specifically to be, in, in her case, a fast food worker. And, and they're all Asian women. And they all have the, at this place, where she works, they all have the cool girl Asian hair streak. It's like a pink stripe. Yeah, she's yeah. got an orange one. Her friend has a blue one. And there's a bunch of different colors. And But they all have uh, the, the recurring trope. <laughs> for, for an Asian woman in a show made in the West, they always have the cool girl streak. And, and that part of her emancipation is cutting that off. Is like, that's cool. It's so cool. <laughs> I like that. But yeah, that's th- but that like speaks to that idea, which is that she was created as the one fabricant who has, or one of the fabricants who have agency or or have the ability to sort of make decisions for themselves. And obviously, that backfires wild widely. But it's like, ironically, that streak in her hair is like corporate commodification of individuality and so she's like no fuck you i'm cutting this thing off i'm just gonna have my black bowl cut and that's cool um i love it i love it there's so much of that stuff that i love i love all of the set pieces i think when they're walking across the narrow bridge Mm -hmm. i think that shit's super cool i think when they like escape in the truck it's great i think when they're in that tunnel and they escape before it floods like all of that is just so much better staged and better looking to me than most big studio action movies. I just kind of wish that Wachowskis were making everything. But we get Matrix 4 this year, so. Oh, yeah. God, so much has happened. And David Mitchell, who wrote Cloud Atlas, the book, mm-hmm. wrote the script for Matrix 4. I just found out, which is fascinating to me. Cloud Atlas is kind of like if you watched all three Matrix movies intercut together at the same time, because there's there's some some of those same uh, patterns repeating as far as like all of this has happened before, all of this will happen again, but what you do in this iteration still matters. A question of whether or not you can fight fate. A question of whether kisses are enough to stop to like make the rev happen. <laughs> I think I, I love that the Wachowskis are big proponents of a uh, kiss fueled rev. <laughs> yeah. They, they have a, they have a few concerns that fuel them. I, uh, I think, I mean, I think the biggest problem with matrix revolutions is that it is just the one thing, right? It's like it's so much of the movie takes place outside of the simulation uh, and in the real world, and that's not really something that anyone wants. And when you have that inner cut with the cool of the Matrix, um, people are into that. 
but exclusively that doesn't work at all. So Cloud Atlas is kind of like they learn their lesson. They're not going to make the movie that is just Tom Hanks in the future with Halle Berry. They're going to intercut it with shit that people want to see, which is like Matrix and Matrix Reloaded. And so uh, on that level, I think Cloud Atlas is more digestible than Matrix Revolutions. Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit, if we may, about uh, the 30s timeline and what's even going on there please what's even going on there so the 30s timeline is where robert frobisher leaves his his beautiful six smith um to go work with vivian Mm airs and he composes the cloud atlas sextet yeah and he he does kisses to halle berry playing a uh a white jewish german woman uh, and he tries to do kisses to uh, Jim Broadbent, but uh, Jim Broadbent rejects him and also yeah. says that if you leave me, I will out you and then no one will ever work with you. And yeah. I don't, this is a brag, I guess, but I know for a fact there's never been a time in classical music that you've, there's never been a time where you've been too gay to work in classical music. That's not a thing. Yeah, but I I think it is, I I think it is, yeah, so just to give people context, the Jim Broadbent character, yeah, says that he'll ruin um, Ben Wishaw's character for being gay, for being, he he describes him as a prostitute and spending his time with perverts, all of these things. I think you're right, but I think that more powerful, established, straight men have been able to wield their power to ruin pretty much anyone they want to who 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 doesn't have support in the field. That's true. You, yeah, no, you're right. I'm being too harsh. And I think it's partially because I, I, I feel I feel for him so much that I'm doing that like what I would have done because I want to save him. <laughs> and so that's like a that's a petty response in my heart that i'll work on correcting (laughs) i i do think though that he i i think he thinks the same thing that you think right because he flees and he's like fuck you i'm gonna write my music anyway i'm gonna leave the wrinkle is that he is confronted by vivian airs and shoots him Mm -hmm. and so then he's facing better yeah Totally, but but he faces imprisonment and he faces this man of incredible influence wielding his power to get him as terrible a sentence as possible and just decides that he would rather free himself and his work from the burden of all of that. But I, I don't think he disagrees with you. Yeah, and I think, yeah, it does, I guess because the first time that you see Frobisher, it is right before he's about to commit suicide. So in a way, it always feels predestined just how, because of how they've set it up. Yeah. So like, I didn't even think about that he was planning on just leaving until Broadbent confronts him because it, it seems like he was always planning on killing himself because he felt like he was out of options. Yeah, and, and his opening monologue is is basically him explaining that he doesn't think suicide is cowardly. He thinks it's the right choice for him, all things considered. Uh, so it, it feels less reactive and more like he's sort of like making his stand and letting his music live on, and I, I don't know. And there's something interesting about 
the choice to set it at the very end of the the uh, between the wars era in like upper class British society. Yeah. Uh, because like it's mentioned briefly that like the this composer Hugo Hugo Weaving plays a German guy who's like a conductor who like kind of helped uh, Halle Berry's character in this timeline escape Germany before the Nazis come to power, but it's kind of also implied that he's down for Nazism. Right. Too. Because, because she's a Jewish woman yeah. and their relationship will not work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. Cause like this particular, this particular man's problems are about to become much smaller in perspective. <laughs> and if he had waited, who knows what would have happened you know, he might have just been drafted and, like, died, so it doesn't really matter. Um, but it, the fact that it's – this particular segment is set at the precipice of a great chaotic moment in history. I don't know. It feels – it doesn't feel weird. It just, it just is something about it that's always sort of, like, tickling my brain while I'm watching all of the, the Frobisher segments. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely hear that. Um, I think the way I make sense of all of it is that in the same way that the filmmaking is deeply personal, I think the journeys of each of these characters are deeply personal. And with the exception of Soon Me dying and becoming a, a like a, a folk hero, and eventually basically, a goddess. Yeah, yeah, eventually a goddess. Obviously, you know, she influences a lot of people, and you could argue that Halle Berry unearthing this fucked up nuclear reactor meltdown before it happens, she's saving a lot of lives. I think most of the characters in the film are not affecting change for a ton of people, but they're affecting great change for the few people with whom they interact most closely throughout time. It's like, it's, you're, you're seeing not the ocean, but a few drops in the ocean. Uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think, I think the reason that the 30 segment sticks out for me in that same way is that, a lot of the story, like when I think about it now, a lot of the the pieces are set before something huge kicks off, right? You know, so like uh, the the first segment is like right before like they're joining a nascent abolitionist movement, so right. it's right before the Civil War. Uh, the thirty second is right before World War Two. The uh, Neo Soul is like sort of showing the beginning of whatever is going to both completely irradiate the world and also start a religion like the seeds of those are sown into that story. And the the future Hawaii part is set right before a mass emigration from Earth, like leaving Earth forever. So it's all stories about right before things kick off for the most part. But they also tend to at least a little bit address the things that are about to kick off, I think a little bit more directly than in, than with the case of the, the 30s segment. Yeah. I think the 30s segment is like this weird meta stitching with him composing this song that means something to people through 
time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know that it, I don't know that that totally tracks if you take a step back and really think about it. But on an affective level, it works for me. I think the 2012 one is the one that's kind of the hardest to argue is like really vital with Cavendish and his. Yeah, it, it fits in because Sunni's friend is inspired by the film of about his. those events to to start her personal revolution moment. Um, but other than that, yeah, it kind of lifts right out. <laughs> yeah, I, I I get it as as. I get it conceptually that, like, this very mundane thing begetting this kind of, like, popular film eventually galvanizing someone in the future who doesn't have access to a lot of culture but really likes this idea of of this, this one character. I like that, but it definitely stands in contrast to everything else in the film, which feels more emotionally hefty. Yeah, I guess those those two segments are kind of about the role of art in social movements, in history, in finding solace or inspiration in an otherwise cruel world. And it's arguing that art has the power to inspire people to to heal the world that they live in. And I guess my question is, does it though? Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's, that's a great question. That's but the I thing think I that... struggle with just as a person who left the social justice and social work for the arts. I'm like, mm, did I do a, an evil thing by <laughs> deciding <laughs> to be an artist? Uh, there's, there's not a, there's not a good answer to that question uh-uh. in not. either direction. And that's just, that's, that's adulthood. I mm-hmm. think a lot of things are inconclusive and unresolved and that is life. On the plus side, I'm not poisoning anybody. So I've got one up on at least one of the Tom Hanks characters. Yeah. You're not, you're not poisoning anyone. And I also think that if you apply enough pressure to any one part of Cloud Atlas, it starts to break apart. <laughs> um, yeah, I think for me the value is just in the the totality of the crazy three hours of the movie. <laughs> you described it as lots. You said lots, lots. is the best descriptor for Cloud Atlas. <laughs> Bethy, we're we're a podcast called Watching Movies at the Bar. What are you drinking right now? What makes you feel like you're at a bar right now? Uh, I just finished a gin ricky which is gin soda and lime mine had that's great lime in it uh so that's what i that's what i did otherwise i don't feel like i'm in a bar i feel like i'm in front of uh my my big old podcast and rig but you know i suspect that our listeners uh driving driving their their pa trucks or uh sitting at home, blowing off work because they've got to listen to the next great episode of watching movies at the bar. Or washing dishes. They don't feel like they're at the bar. Yes, washing dishes at the bar. It's, you You do what you can. I'm I'm drinking a margarita, which has got me 20% of the way there. Should we do shout-outs to bars we miss? I would love to do shout-outs to bars that we miss. We talked about trying to shout-out bars we miss. I don't think we did it in the episode about, no, we did it in the episode about swingers because I just talked about how much I miss Las Vegas. But uh, today, I am particularly missing The Bishop, which was my home bar in Bloomington. 
and specifically how if I needed to print something I could use their printer. And that was a, a beautiful bond of sacred trust I had with that particular bar. That's incredible. I am missing a bit more local to us now, Ye Rustic Inn. I think the beers are slightly overpriced for the atmosphere of the bar, but I uh, I love to hang out there with my friends. I lived down the street for a couple years, and there is nowhere I would rather be right now after a year of being mostly in my apartment than sitting at the dirty bar at Rustic drinking a Bud Light. A little peek behind the curtain. We are pod- this. We are recording this on a Tuesday, so it would have been karaoke night tonight at Rustic. Oh, God damn it. I, uh, you know what? I won't share my, my friend's, uh, karaoke experience we had at Rustic, but I'll just say it was funny. (laughs) (laughs) I went to karaoke at Rustic once on Halloween. Scaryoke. Scaryoke. I don't think I ever got to sing. That's really fucked up. And ultimately they're lost. Very crowded. I was dressed like, uh, I think I was in my wedding dress. I think I was Sharon Tate in my wedding dress. That's great. I, I The first Bethy Halloween costume I was ever aware of was um, shortly after I started hanging out with Steph. Um, you guys went out together on Halloween, and you were dressed as person excited for Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because I had been working in a restaurant that for some reason, it was a, well, because it was a ramen restaurant, uh, the like PR team had given them uh, Blade Runner 2049? 29? 2049. Blade Runner 2020, 2020, 2020. Blade Runner C Lab 2021. Um, <laughs> they had given them a hat and a fidget spinner and like all of this swag. And the people are supposed to like solve riddles or like bring us like origami unicorns and they would get a free hat but nobody did so i got a free hat so that was my cost i just really was grooving on this blade runner 2049 hat (laughs) um so you're gonna get to know bethy and i a bit over the course of this podcast and 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 our, our our differing approaches to watching movies but a little little fact about me is that i saw blade runner 2049 three times in theaters and that movie is in the neighborhood of two hours and 45 minutes but i did not care that was time that i wanted to spend in an air-conditioned auditorium watching that movie and i love it i think it's uh i think it's a great movie but i think that costume is really funny speaking of costumes i feel like we did not speak enough about the various hair makeup clothing costumes to to help us like go into the different worlds of cloud atlas and the various uh noses that were bestowed to the the cast and crew they're they're incredible and i think you made the point at the beginning of this podcast when i said you know this movie may sound silly it may sound earnest and you're like no 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 it is silly and it is earnest a lot of that silliness is encapsulated in these costumes and so i made a list for sure, of some of my favorites. I don't know if you did, but uh, I would love to talk about this. I was thinking about how Hugh Grant has a, a fake nose in the 2012 segment when he super doesn't need one. He's playing someone like 10 years older than him, and he has to look like Jim he... Broadbent's brother, but he does not. He He looks like somebody has applied 
fuck. Who's the guy who won the Oscar for Gandhi? Ben Kingsley. He looks like somebody has yeah, applied yeah. Ben Kingsley prosthetics to his head without regard for trying to get Ben Kingsley's face shape. <laughs> so they've just sort of like put little like like he got a, a CVS Kingsley pack of prosthetics that he glued on himself. That's how he looks in 2012 to me. That's that's funny. I I like that better than than the way that I would describe that character, which is that I think he looks like he is playing Albert Brooks playing whoever that character is. <laughs> but uh, I no, I, I love that. I think Hugh Grant is doing some of the funnier shit <laughs> in this movie, um, timeline for timeline. The way he keeps saying muzz. Because he's, he's trying to show that this lady journalist is, like, stupid for wanting to be a feminist and being called Ms. Ray, as opposed. But he's too British to say Ms. with, like, a really closed I. So he, he keeps yeah. putting it in the back of his mouth like it's chewing tobacco. He's like, Ms. Ray. <laughs> he's got one of the most, like, hammy lines in the movie, too. I, I love... I love the Wachowskis, but I think sometimes they lay it on thick with villainy. And, and there is a line where he's like, oh, if all women's rights advocates were uh, as attractive as you, I would start to take this whole movement seriously. Do, do, do you remember that? I remember yeah. that. It, Yeah, it was. it felt especially needless to say, but it also felt like in character for this guy. Okay, so I do also want to ask, so it turns out Big Oil is going to use this nuclear plant. He's going to, like, melt it down intentionally to keep us all on on Big Oil. So is this movie, like, pro-nuclear power (laughs) or con? I think, well, I mean... I, am I about to embarrass myself? Isn't nuclear energy, when contained properly, much cleaner than fossil fuels? It's sort of. So it has fewer emissions, but the when contained properly is so... Tenuous? <laughs> it, it In the same way that if communism worked the way that it does in a book, then, you know, Stalinist Russia would have been a paradise. Like, the... The, the the perfect world of this thing working perfectly has yet to happen on the planet. Does that mean we should give up? I would argue in communism's case, no. I would argue in nuclear power's case, yes, because uh, of just the extensive half-life of most... Th- and, like, there's, like, so many kinds... There's, like, this kind of nuclear plant called, like, a breeder reactor that causes even more... It causes, like, an infinite supply of more plutonium to use to to make more power plants oh christ so like in theory that's a good thing because then you can make more power but it it breaks bad every time it all it all seems bad i i would say that i don't think the movie really comes down too firmly on the side of nuclear power or fossil fuels i think it's more about the irresponsibility of corporations right yeah, because like the, the 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 nuclear company is trying to keep this dossier secret because they're trying to sort their shit out, and then the oil company is aware of it and they want to keep it secret because they know. No, but the oil company hired Hugh Grant to run the company, so it, there's like 
So most of the people at the nuclear plant want the nuclear plant to work and they're hiding it to cover their ass. But Hugh Grant is specifically trying to monkey wrench the nuclear plant to to put trust in big oil. Right, right. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think the movie really sides with either of them. I think the movie sides with Halle Berry's character, Louisa Ray, as like the arbiter of truth in this really fucked up, game of corporate tug of war that has no regard for human life but that's just my perspective yeah i guess in in the futurist part of the future world it earth is irradiated to the point where it's no longer habitable so (laughs) that feels anti-nuclear power oh yeah totally um i think i think louisa succeeds in exposing that moment's potential terror but yeah i think something else goes awry down the road bethy and i don't work for nuclear energy corporations or big gas so you can trust us (laughs) we can be bought though hint hint yeah so if if nuclear power wants to sponsor us who are we to say no um, yeah, if Amazon wants to give me $100 to say that uh, there are toilets on the premises of their warehouses, uh, I will tweet that from a burner. Amazon knows full well that my price is higher than $100. <laughs> That's true. Um, good for you, Bethy. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, how, how do we feel about Hugo weaving as Nurse Noakes? Look, he has to be the heavy in every single one. Does he have to be a a lady heavy in that part? I think maybe that was one reason that that part, that section didn't do it for me, is that it it recapped so many tropes of the wrongfully imprisoned in a mental institution, even though it's an old folks home in this case. That uh, the like the nurse ratchet having to be like a giant woman. Yeah, I don't need. I don't need that. Speaking as a giant woman, I don't need that. Who worked in a mental hospital? Bethy's you know? really strong. You may hear about this in later episodes, <laughs> but Bethy, Bethy is a bench presser, and I am. Uh, Bethy's kissing her I'm biceps. I'm kissing my right muscles. <laughs> um, I'm a, I'm a a smaller guy. <laughs> no spoilers. I like I like Hugo Weaving as a woman, and I think for me, I just take a step back and I think Lana and Lily Wachowski making this movie, I trust them to do the heavy lifting to make sure that this is appropriate, and I just uh, absorb the spectacle. But maybe that's irresponsible as a consumer. Uh, you know, I think if Claudius teaches us anything, it's that life is short. But maybe happens again. Yeah, I like that. And hopefully not too short to listen to our uh, new podcast, Watching Movies at the Bar, <laughs> starring Bethy and Thomas. Having a normal one. Um, so I want to thank you, Thomas, for making me watch Cloud Atlas, because I think it really prepared me for The Matrix Resurrections in a way. <laughs> Yeah, I love Cloud Atlas, and I feel like Matrix Resurrections is the original trilogy kind of inflected through that prism. So yeah, it's it's the best primer. 
Yeah, it really helped. I don't know. Um, I, I watched the movie uh, later than everyone else because I was uh, in Indiana with my family for its, like, big release date. Um, so when I finally got, got back to a place where I felt like I had time to, like, watch a two-and-a-half-hour movie that nobody in my family would be interested in, um, <laughs> I I watched it, and I was, like, yelling, just yelling in my own home. Just uh, My main thing that I was yelling, and it's most of what I said in, in my letterboxed, review of it is that I think this this movie felt almost like a documentary of like the past 20 years to me <laughs> in a weird way because of how how well it touches on uh you know resurgence of extremist ideology after a seeming period of peace and the way that all ideology is uh commercialized by capitalist entertainment and the way that as a maker of art uh, you feel weird about that and trying to like parse it um, and how it feels like half of the world is bots now and how um, the world. But also that we've learned to coexist with those bots, that those bots are no longer the enemy. Like there is a complexity even to that. It is it's like some of some of the what are the what do they call the machines that you view machine as like an M slur? Cynthians. Uh... Uh, uh, Sentinels? Synthians, I think. Which which ones are we talking about? You're not talking about the big squid-like I'm talking creatures? about the friend robots. The, oh, so like, oh, oh. Friend robots don't identify as machines. They identify as synthians, I think. Right, okay. Um. So there's that. But then in the Matrix, half of, the, like, a, a much larger percentage of the people that you interact with every day in the Matrix are bots they are not people like that's like part of the difference too is that you'd never know whether someone is actually a person or not anymore and then also right. the way that the world is now just vibes no facts just vibes <laughs> and it's neil patrick harris's fault that all felt very true yeah 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 i i i love that as well and uh the, the thing about interacting solely with bots or or you know, a lot of your day being spent interacting with bots. That was a sci-fi concept when The Matrix came around originally, and now it is just such a reflection of being on Twitter, like like getting on your computer. Um, it the, the Matrix feels like something you can touch and something you can experience now in a way that it didn't necessarily then. Um, what was your what was your initial reaction? I've sort of barfed mine at you. What was your reaction? <laughs> Um, I was I was really floored by the movie, and I think what I should say is, you know, Cloud Atlas and Matrix Resurrections to me are both 10 out of 10 movies. They're exactly what I want out of, you know, a big studio budget. I want people to try strange things. I want them to take big swings. I I think it is messy, but I'm so excited by what it is. It it whereas you see it as a as a documentary, as this large reflection of society, which I think is is definitely true. I saw it as a, a, a deeply personal, almost autobiographical film about Lana and her relationship to The Matrix. And, you know, that's that's pretty one-to-one in, in the early days of the movie where you realize that Thomas has been recast as this game designer who has created The Matrix as a way of sort of distancing him mentally from his experience. But um, it what I heard when they announced they were rebooting The Matrix was that Warner Brothers did go to the Wachowskis and say, hey... 
we're going to reboot the property. Are you interested? And their response was no. And then Warner Brothers said, we're going to do this with or without you. Um, and they talked about it a bit. Lily didn't want to make the movie. But Lana said, like, fuck you. This is ours. If anyone's going to make this movie, it's going to be me. Um, and so when you're watching the movie, obviously, they make reference to that when they say, oh, our parent mm -hmm. company, Warner Brothers. But it, it is so much more than that. It feels to me like, you know, the first act of the movie is just reflective of you know, Lana's disillusionment with having created this huge franchise and the, and, and the way that it's impacted culture for better or worse. Um, but as it becomes a more conventional Matrix story, as Thomas is unplugged from his pod, as he becomes Neo again, as he's in a ship, he's wearing his shitty tattered sweater, it feels like it mirrors Lana's process making this movie, right? It's like the first part is a little bit depressive. It's figuring out how to get excited about this property again. And then suddenly the whole thing just becomes rooted in love for this world and these characters. And I don't know, I really liked it. It felt like a really personal movie. Yeah, I agree. When I say it's a documentary, I, I do think it's like one of those like personal auteurist documentaries, like yeah. Orson Welles' F for Fake, like an essay film almost. Right, right, right. Um. I, I, I should say, though, I think it is both of those things at once, as mm -hmm. well as many other things. It is, oh, it is sure. often unwieldy, but I love so much of what it is. As somebody who, somebody said on Twitter uh, that anybody who comes up with a take for The Matrix Resurrections needs to, like, remember that there's a scene in the movie that says all of your takes are wrong. Right, right. And, and I think that it's it's so interesting to me that the creative, the sort of foundational creative process with this movie seems to uh, bloom from a baseline assumption that there should not be a sequel. Uh, right. It's like mm -hmm. it's like it, it is a, it is a movie that on on the most obvious meta level is about how we should not return to this world. We should not constantly reboot these properties. But the fact that it finds uh, so much love and so many interesting ideas, even knowing that it probably shouldn't exist that I, I think that's really thrilling yeah and it also gives a chance to explore as 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 trinity says like near the end of the movie it's another chance to to discuss the issues of the film and also give more weight to certain characters like the fact that this obviously spoilers spoilers throughout and i said at the top oh, yeah, of this yeah. spoilers spoilers throughout uh you know, Trinity saves herself this time, and that's sick as hell. Right. And that's, like, something that, like, you know, I I never really had that much of a problem with Trinity being, like, a little bit, like, doomed love interest, because you're dealing in tropes, and that's, like, part of it. You know, you can't, if you're trying to make a monomyth, there's only so much pushing back you can do. Um, but that Trinity gets to save herself, Trinity is the one that gets to fly, that... The Matrix now runs on uh, the way that humans yearn to connect but stay isolated, yeah. like specifically manifest by Trinity and Neo, that that uh, putting love at the center felt like a one thing that they got to add to the movie, to the trilogy that wasn't there before. 
Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and you mentioned something earlier about how Neil Patrick Harris is talking about how the Matrix was sort of reconstituted in the wake of the initial war and, and Neo's heroic journey in, in the original trilogy. And now rather than running on these strict mechanical and functional principles, it is about emotion, it is about sort of human irrationality. Like, that, that is a really exciting meta idea to me, because I think a lot of what people rejected about uh, the sequels, about Reloaded and about Revelations was uh, that, that there was a, a silliness to the really earnest emotion between Neo and Trinity. And that was something that so fascinated the Wachowskis. Um, and when you go back and watch those movies now, they're a blast. But it feels like Resurrections understands that to reboot the property, it can't be a reboot that exists purely on mechanical principles. It really has to lean into sort of the love and connection between these characters. And that will be enough to buoy this. Um, and for me, it is. I, I think they have an otherworldly chemistry in this movie. I was emotional watching them meet again. It that the fact that the new matrix runs on vibes uh, works <laughs> on like two different levels because on the one hand it is that like it's sort of uh, building in a thesis statement of like please stop trying to cinema sins this oh yeah this is about feelings but then it also is a political critique of the fact that uh you know authoritarian populism is emo- is based on appeals to emotion and that that is the easiest way to control people. According right. to Neil Patrick Harris in the movie, like the the rate of people that nope out of the Matrix is so much lower for this iteration because it runs on feelings. And it's much hard, like the brain isn't rebelling against feelings. Right. Yeah, there's a real nuance to the movie this time around. That is, there, There's lots of nuance in the original trilogy. They're dealing in some really interesting ideas, particularly of identity. But in this movie, the way that humans have chosen to coexist in some part with machines in a way that they absolutely did not in the original trilogy makes it very complicated. And it, I think it also helps bring in... Have you seen the Animatrix? Oh, yeah. which Some of which is really good. Yeah, it's it's a mixed bag, but you know, they have the the short about how the war with the machines started and it's a little bit unreliable narrator y, but it's like because it's from the point of view of the machines. But this movie is sort of has like brings that more into the conversation because it's like, well, we didn't have to get to this binary as the as they keep using that word in the movie it didn't have to be so binary yeah was a choice that was made early on also if you're just jumping in bethy's referring to the second renaissance parts one and two in the animatrix which to me are by far the best shorts and i I think the way it casts the human's response to the machines as being kind of short-sighted and irresponsible complicates the original trilogy in a really cool way yeah, and I and in a way that is echoed by this movie too. Definitely. In the way that like the guys are, you know, some some of the programs are now just those like magnetic balls that you can get at a <laughs> science museum gift shop. Like that's how they walk around in meat space. I think that's cool. Yeah, yeah. I realized talking about this how much I love this franchise in this world in a way that almost makes it difficult for me to be articulate because it does come 
from such a place of emotion. I think there is a, a kind of a dopey earnestness to the way the Wachowskis make movies that that really, really connects with me, even when I don't necessarily think they're great movies. And so, so many of my feelings are about this or are just from my gut. Yeah, if if I've learned anything from a year of podcasting with you about movies is that a dopey earnestness <laughs> will always get you. <laughs> it goes it goes a long way for me and I think some of that is just that we are in this moment of blockbuster cinema that has been so deadpooled. Um mm. and I don't think that the deadpool approach is inherently bad, but when I think I think when that sort of like winking self-reflexive quality that that almost is is holding the viewer in disdain for spending time with the the work it's like who is who is this for like why are you mocking me for watching this movie like i I just want to immerse myself and i guess resurrections walks a really interesting line in that it it has that meta self-reflexive quality but also is is really sweet and excited about what it's doing and that is uh, a difference that I think is hard to split. But yeah, definitely that's something I gravitate toward. How do we feel about the new the new guys? I I like I like them all. I mean I'm I'm a sucker for Jonathan Groff. Um I think our what what is the name of our new Morpheus? Oh Yahya Abdul Mateen. I think he's incredible. Um Unreal Charisma. I don't know who plays Bugs. I really like her. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm into it. But but again, like I, I hold these movies and even the sequels in kind of compartments unto themselves. Like they don't have to... I, I, I don't know. I, I, I like this movie on its own and as part of the franchise. I don't need all of the elements I loved from before to return. I just like that Lana has returned to this place. What about you? How do you feel about them? Um, I love them all. I wish we got more time with Bugs's crew. Yeah. That they were a little bit more clearly individuated. But this is this movie arguably maybe should have been two movies, but that's fine. These things happen. I like what I have. I think I think the time spent in the real world is clearly less interesting to Lana than the other stuff is like and 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 to me like when Neo is in very brief captivity and is sprung like minutes later it's like oh this feels almost more like an obligation than something she's excited to explore but also maybe it's just a a function of having to do so much in one movie I think it could very much be both like the the general like disinterest in uh, the knitwear sphere. <laughs> the, uh, the knitwear sphere, I think, is a better way to describe it than whatever I've been saying. <laughs> because like I, part of the issue is like which real world are we talking about? Are we talking about the world that most closely the Matrix, which is fake but resembles our reality the most, or yes, the one that seems the most fake, which is real within the thingy, blah blah blah. Which brings me to my next point, which is, uh, did you find this movie easy to understand or hard to understand? Because I've seen some people be like, I don't, I can't follow this. I'm confused. Whereas I felt like I understood everything and I didn't understand what there was to not get. I think I think I understood everything on a plot level. And I also think I understood most of what they were trying to do from a meta perspective in the first 
45 to 50 minutes of the movie. Beyond that, I actually think there's a lot to unpack um, that will be exciting for me to return to on consecutive viewings. But I do think that the story of the movie and its its overall mission is is very clear on a first pass. Um, I almost wish it had been crazier. I, I, I kind of thought for the first half hour of the movie that they were going to do such a meta removal that maybe Thomas Anderson really was just someone who had created this video game trilogy, right? And and that the movie was just going to live in that reality and maybe he actually was going to be kind of insane. I, I sort of thought that as Bugs was springing him, they were going to continue to sort of do this tug of war with the audience trying to decide like what the real world was and 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 what was reality and what was psychosis but i i I like the movie but i could have spent even more time in that ambiguity i did also think that it was gonna i wasn't sure which way we were we were going to fall out on by the end of the movie um i'm i'm cool with it ending where it did because i liked uh that Neo made the choice to be in the reality that he chose to be in. I think that yeah. was, I don't know, satisfying, I guess I would say. Um, I would also say, yeah, the back the back part, once we get into the knitwear verse, um, it did get very exposition heavy with like punches in between, which I was all about. Yeah. Um, but if anybody, this is, this is a real call, uh, DM me, DM the show if you want someone to explain any part of the Matrix Resurrections. I will say <laughs> foolhardily now that I understand it with perfect clarity. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think I also get most of most of the movie. Uh, I, I've been sort of surprised by the negative response from people who don't like it. And maybe it's just that you're not interested in the mission of Lana Wachowski or, or or what this movie is to her. But like, I think it's so exciting if you just submit yourself to what it is. Um, even like when it, it feels really exposition heavy, like, I don't know, these are computer programs and they're not computer programs, but it's like the way that they talk to each other is sometimes going to be kind of rote and plot oriented because like... They are a, a function of these mechanical principles. I don't know. I think, I I think you could dismiss a lot of it out of hand, and I think it's it's worth embracing. Yeah. Also, I think part of the maybe issue isn't the right word, but like sci-fi has for a long time been considered like a niche genre, and now arguably it's the biggest genre, like because superhero movies have been lumped into science fiction but like uh the matrix movies always had a certain bit of hard sci-fi and that has a lot of techno babble there's going to be a lot of explaining because it's for uh people who love to process information about systems yeah uh almost as much as they love uh explosions and like hot people and feelings like that is just like another pillar of the genre and one that as the as the genre is sort of like watered down by blockbusterdom sometimes is like the part that gets lost yeah i i i couldn't agree more um runs on vibes runs on vibes completely and i i've seen i've seen a couple of takes that are 
crazy dumb that don't even understand what the opening of the movie is doing, which to me feels blatantly obvious, but they're like, oh, it's ultimately just a remake of the original, even though there are some slight deviations. And I don't feel that at all. I think I think it feels like, I don't know, very different from a conventional reboot and has a cinematic language unto itself. Yeah, I would agree. Um, and I don't know, I don't know what this is, but I noticed that the two sort of big bad machines, uh, Smith 2.0 and the analyst, are played by like the two most mainstream gay actors who often play straight like the two like two of the only gay actors who are allowed to play straight in big blockbusters i don't know what that means but i noticed it yeah yeah um yeah no that's that's an interesting point i i hadn't thought too much about that other than yes jonathan groff is a gay man who often plays incredibly straight (laughs) like uh especially his mind hunter character is so sort of buttoned up and conventionally straight in a way that is I, I don't know, shocking, given who that person is. Yeah, and then Neil Patrick Harris made all of the money in the entire world playing the most straight man on TV for nine years? Yeah. Ten years? How long was that show on? I, I, I have no idea. Nobody could possibly say. There's no way to tell. It, it was before It was before the war with the machines. I've forgotten everything from those days. That's for dang true. Um... Did we do it? Yeah, I feel like we just kind of freewheeled, but I hope that the big takeaway is that your trusted watching movies at the bar co-hosts think The Matrix Resurrections is cool. It was a big swing, and for us, it connected. Yeah, do you guys like baseball? Because if you do, this one's a home run. Okay, good night, everybody. <laughs> good night, everybody. Oh, this this has been watching movies at the bar. If if uh, if this wasn't enough, you can check us out on uh, Twitter. We've got a handle, Bethy. What is it again? At movie bar pod. I will one day bring consummate professionalism to this podcast, but right now we're just figuring it out, and we're so, so happy that you're uh, along for the ride. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Watching Movies at the Bar is edited by Colin Jenkins, with show art by Lindsay Farrell, and that theme you hear at the top. That's Quentin Mulligan.